here um, to bring to you the, the Word of God. Today's scripture is a dramatic pause. You know what a dramatic pause is? If I were to do a dramatic pause now in my speaking, I would... And what would be happening with you during that dramatic pause? You'd look up from your cell phone and go, what's happening? <laughs> I say that because last Sunday I saw all kinds of people looking at their cell phones during worship. So I thought I'd throw that out. That contributions. Sorry. <laughs> oh, good. So this uh, passage that we're going to read in Acts chapter 1 is a dramatic pause, or some theologians have called it a significant pause. Because the promised Messiah has come. The disciples have walked with him and talked with him and learned from him about 33 years. He dies on a Roman cross and their hopes are dashed. But the resurrection comes which changes everything. And now he has ascended to be with the Father and they're left alone. He's given them a mission, but he hasn't told them how to do it. And so there they are in this really pregnant pause, this dramatic pause, wondering what do we do next? The 11 disciples decided that they would fill the vacant spot left by the death of Judas, one of the 12, the one who betrayed Jesus, and they began a process to do that, and that is what our narrative in Acts chapter 1 is about. We find this in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and then 21 through 26. So listen to the word of God. Then they returned to Jerusalem, they is the disciples. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Then we'll skip down to verse, <clears throat> oh no, i got to keep going. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, uh, the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now we'll skip down to verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us in the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism and the time when Jesus was taken up then from us. For one of those, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry with Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. 
By the way, this is the only time that Matthias is mentioned in scripture, we never hear of him again. There he is, uh, a new apostle. So today's scripture I think is very appropriate for where Lightshine is in its history, in our history, because we are at a dramatic pause, or a significant pause. Not a pause in that nothing is happening, there is nothing going on, but rather we are assessing the next steps in moving forward in our ministry. And so this text gives us a glimpse in how this start-up church, this nascent infant church, started in Jerusalem and what they did. What they did were two things. The disciples thought about the next steps, and the disciples prayed about the next steps. First of all, the disciples thought about the next steps. Judas' death obviously left a vacancy that needed to be filled. So how were they going to find someone to fill that particular position? Well, first the disciples got together and they discussed it. And they decided on a set of qualifications, very simple qualifications. First, that they would have been this person that they would choose to be an apostle with the other 11, would have been with Jesus from the very beginning. As he began his ministry in Galilee, in the north of, of Judah, that he would be with them from the very beginning at John's baptism all the way till the end to that present point. Also then, that he will, would have experienced the resurrection. Because how could he witness to the resurrected Christ if he hadn't witnessed the resurrected Christ? So those are the two very simple qualifications that they said had to be met in order to become an apostle. And then the eleven that are there are acting like a nominating committee that we have in the Presbyterian churches, and they selected two candidates and put them before uh, the people of the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, not just the, not just the 12 or the 11, but the 120 that were considered to be followers of Jesus. And so they acted as a nominating committee, they put these candidates up, and now this all seems perfectly logical and rational to us, a very good, simple process. And then they cast lots. Casting a lot, lots were like dice. They were little bits of bone with some kind of image on them, and somehow, we don't know how, they would throw them, and that would tell them what they were seeking from God. And so they cast lots. So it seems a little strange to us, but we'll get into that some more in a moment. So, what does this have to do with Lightshine and where we are at this moment in our history? Well, I think that this passage hints or gives us a reason that informs Jesus' disciples that they should and can use their minds in the service of the Lord. You see, what they did first is they thought about what are the qualifications for this person that's going to be a disciple, that's going to be an apostle. They thought, they used their minds. Jesus left his disciples with a mission. You shall go into uh, and proclaim my name, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was the mission. He also said, go and teach all that I have taught you, baptizing people in my name. So there's the mission. But he didn't tell them how to do it. They had to figure that out. 
And so that's where they are. They are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and the rest of the world. But how? The only thing he told them to do was to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. That's it. They have to figure it out. What this says to me is that using our minds is a God-given activity. It is what God has created us to do. That He has made us as rational people and he wants us to use our minds to find out how to do his mission, how to be his people. They said we need a full complement of leaders to go to all the world with the story of Jesus and so here's how we're going to go about it. So they thought about how to select this individual. So God created us all with minds. Thinking is a God-ordained, a God-pleasing, a God-worthy activity. But let me just give you a little caution here. Our minds aren't ultimate. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The second truth I think is implied in this passage is that God likes process. The first is, God wants us to think about what we are to do. The second implication here is that God is a God of process. God created the universe in an orderly fashion. Out of the primordial ooze of Genesis 1, 1, it says, and God created the earth. He created order out of chaos. And if you look at both of the Genesis passages that speak of the creation, both of them are poems. They're songs to the creator. The first chapter and the second chapter, and they each have a different emphasis. The first chapter is God-centric. It's about God. God created. God said it was good. God did this. The second is more uh, anthropocentric. It's man-human-centered. And it speaks about the highest of God's creation is humanity created in, him, in his image. And so, he wants and likes order. This infant church created a simple orderly process to accept, to accept the next apostle. They thought about it and how to do the task. And so, I think we see here that God wants us to be orderly in what we do. Now, here's the caution. Whatever is conceived by human reason has within it truth, beauty, order, wholeness, but it also has the, the seeds of its own destruction. It has darkness and evil embedded within it as well. Human reason is not ultimate. It is finite. It is limited. Sin is the, is the fly in the ointment of our existence. So we must be very careful that we don't become so enamored with our creations, the products of our efforts, the thinking, the planning, uh, so that those things become our gods. We must be very careful. Since we are alienated from our creature, our creations are tainted with rebellion, with estrangement, with separation from God. And this Alienation rears its ugly head when our processes, our structures, our orders serve our needs only and our desires and not the mission that God has given to us. Now, if you were to ask me, Dale, why do you think that the mainline churches have lost members precipitously? Or more uh, uh, to the point, 
Why have we in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America lost so many members and so many churches are closing? The first thing I would say is, well, it's a very nuanced question and answer. And nobody is really sure why. We can point to all kinds of cultural things, theological things, other things. But if you were to ask me to give my opinion, if I had to uh, tell you, I want to know one thing that you think is at the heart of uh, the decline in the denomination. I would say a good part of the rapid decline in the PCUSA is because we put order above mission. The way we function as a church has become more important than the mission that Christ has given to us. You've heard me say, and I have been saying, order is God. God is a, is a God of order. He wants things to be orderly. But we must keep him in the right perspective. Order is always a tool for mission. Mission is always the priority. But we function in an orderly fashion to fulfill that mission that God is giving us. We do things decently in order, and I'm afraid that has become more important in the PCUSA than mission. We forget that structures are meant to facilitate mission. The disciples recognized that they needed divine help, that they couldn't do this all themselves. And what they were called to do would take some serious thinking, but more importantly, it would take design discernment. And so they prayed. We need to do serious thinking, planning, strategizing about the next step in Lightshine's existence. For the sermon, I looked through, uh, I went online and, and tried to find articles about startups. And why do startups fail? Why do startups succeed? And I found one that, that I think kind of summarized all of the others. But the one point I pulled out of all of that is that this author said that even with a startup, as young as they are, they become enamored with their product or their, their service or their business plan or their business model. They become so enamored with it that even at the beginning, they need to make changes and they can't do it. And so they begin to fail. My wife has taught me a very important lesson. In teaching, she says, you must constantly monitor and adjust. And all startups, including churches, need to monitor, monitor and adjust to use our minds to think carefully with thoughts after God and try to bring about the changes that are necessary. So what did the disciples do? They thought, orderly thoughts. And then they prayed. They realized that they needed help if they were to do the mission as witnesses of the living Christ. They prayed. Did you notice in the reading of the scripture that twice Luke mentions prayer? He says this in verse 14. All these, referring to the followers of Jesus, the 120 that were there, all of these were constantly, get the words here, constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women. I like the certain women. That's an editorial comment that Luke has thrown in there to say, hey guys, there were women in leadership in Jerusalem. <laughs> the disciples were aware that they couldn't judge a person's heart 
Only God could do that. So they asked God, they prayed to reveal to them the people that were to be, the two that were to be the next apostles. And then in verse 25, then they prayed, this is the second time in this, this passage, then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Jesus turned aside to go to his own place. You notice the progression here? You, we don't know the heart. You know the heart. We've thought of these um, qualifications to be an apostle, and we've got these candidates, but we don't know their hearts. So we're asking you to help us discern who's the right one. And then they cast the... the uh, not to die, <laughs> but the lots. And so, you know, that seems to us to be a little strange to it, but think of it like what, how we function. What do we do? We do the same thing the early church did. We have a nominating committee, they nominate leadership, and then we vote on those. Right? Because we believe that if we go through this orderly process and have prayed to God, that God will bring his results out of that process. And that God will choose the people for leadership that, has, that he has in mind for leadership in whatever church you're in. And so we vote. That's our equivalent of throwing the lots. Same thing. But we're in a democratic society, and so we think more in a more democratic process. So I don't think the casting lot is that important, other than the fact it helps us understand what the apostles were doing. Luke is the author, the, Luke the physician is the author of both Luke and Acts. They're two books put into two different volumes, but they're all one. One is, is the Acts of Jesus, the other is the Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus left, what did the apostles do? A theme that runs all the way through Luke and Acts that the, the gospel writer Luke writes is prayer. In Acts, he gives little glimpses, occasionally summaries of what the, what the church is doing. And so we have an idea of what happened in just summary ways of the early church in Jerusalem. And one of them that I really like is in Acts 2, uh, verse 42, because it's a summary of what the church should be about in a simple sentence. So here's what it says. They, speaking of the, uh, the followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the teachings that the apostles received from Jesus that they're passing on to the rest of the people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, meaning having fun together, but even more importantly, sharing of the life at, at depths, to the breaking of bread, and that can mean two things. It can mean having a meal together, it can also mean the serving communion. Here it probably means a combination of the two in what's called the agape feast, where they ate a meal and shared communion too. And then the last thing, and to the prayers. That's a dramatic pause. <laughs> what is Luke saying? He's telling us what the disciples did, and one of the things they did is they prayed. The prayers meant 
the ritual liturgical prayers in the temple because we know they went to worship every day in the temple. When they were in Jerusalem, the disciples went to worship at the temple every day. So we know it means that. It also means as the disciples were gathered together in that upper room, they prayed together. And I'm sure it also means their individual prayers. So the message here, to me, is clear. Prayer was an essential part of the life of the first church. Now, have you ever wondered why praying? <coughs> I have. And I feel something like uh, Holden Caldwell and Catcher in the Rye. When someone says, well, you know, he had all kinds of adolescent angst and problems. Have you prayed about that, Holden? And he says, no, I tried that once. It didn't work. And I feel like that at times. Why bother? I tried it and it didn't work. But I have to check myself. One of the things that we must always do as followers of Christ is we must doubt our doubts. And I need to question that doubt and to check myself and remind myself of the purpose of prayer. You see, prayer isn't principally about getting things from God. It's not about receiving stuff. It's not even about getting God on our side so we'll have the winning team. Now, having said that, that is not to say that God doesn't want us to ask to intervene in our lives to grant us our needs. Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, a model prayer for us. We say it every Sunday here at my church. In that prayer are requests. Give us this day our daily bread. God delights in us coming to him with our requests. Just as we as parents delight in our children coming to us with their questions, their problems, and their requests. God delights in his people coming to him. So why pray? Because praying is about knowing God. It is first and foremost about developing and growing the relationship between ourselves and the risen Lord. What do we do? How do we build relationships with people? We talk to them and we listen. What happens to a couple that never talk seriously with one another? They either become, at best, two people on different tracks in the same house, or they're headed to divorce court. We must pray to know God. And that praying means listening as much as talking. Now you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, prayer changes things. And I say, I'm not so sure that prayer changes things, it may, it may not, but I believe it changes us.
How can we be connected to the creator, the sovereign lord of, of the universe, the lord of history, without being changed? So prayer doesn't change things as much as it changes me. I don't think I've shared this experience with you, but if I have, it bears repeating. But my first year in school and college was at a Bible college in Missouri. At the end of the year, I had a loan of $6,000 left on my tuition. And I knew I'd had it because I signed a document agreeing that I would repay that, that loan six, uh, three months after the end of, of the school year. Well, I didn't know how I was going to pay that. I had no money. My parents were barely making it on two salaries. They were at a subsistence level, barely making it. They had no money. I had no job. So I thought, well, I could pray. But then I came across a verse that I had known, and it came back to me somehow from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And this verse reads this way. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Anybody here remember the Amplified Bible? Yeah, that's what I was reading at this time in my life. The Amplified Bible is actually a paraphrase. It wasn't a translation. And they would take a word, and they would put in parentheses additional synonyms for that word that are possibilities from the Greek. They weren't just making things up. Because, you know, when you translate a, a language, words have multiple meanings. And so they would take that, and so you could pick one, choose one, and make it a, a richer one. Well, when I was reading this, uh, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God, what the Amplified Bible is, they decided they needed a qualifier uh, before seek him, and they put diligently. And so it reads this way, without faith it is impossible to please God for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and he reward those who diligently seek him. And I thought, good, I can do that. If that's the secret, if that's the formula for God to get me to answer my prayers, I'm going to diligently seek him. So I began praying every day before I left school and as I went home. When I got home, I was home two weeks before the California schools got out. So I hit the pavement, began looking for a job, went and applied everywhere I knew. I would just walk around the street and go into the store or a shop or, or a bakery or a restaurant, anything, trying to find a job. And sometime, and I don't remember when, but sometime in the middle of that two-week period, I knew that God was going to answer my prayer. It wasn't a maybe. It wasn't a I hope so, or I think maybe it'll happen. I knew, and that wasn't like me. I'd never had that experience before then. But I was absolutely certain it was going to happen. The second Sunday I was home, a man in my church came up to me, a friend of mine, and said, hey, why don't you come and apply at American Buck Distributors? And I knew about them. They were about three-quarters of a mile from my house, but I didn't know they hired people. He said, yeah, we, we hire seasonal workers. Maybe you can get on there. So I went down, not on Monday because that was Memorial, uh, Memorial Day, it was on Tuesday. I uh, applied. On Wednesday night, I started work. At the end of the summer, I paid back that $600. That was in 1960. You know how much $600 is worth today? About $6 million. <laughs> so you can see why I couldn't pay it off. 
But at the end of the summer, I paid off the loan without any help but myself. I bought a new suit, the first suit I'd ever purchased in my life. I always had hand-me-downs from cousins and other people. I bought a pair of Levi's, a 501s, you know what they cost in 1960? $3.50. Never forget that. I thought that was outrageous. <laughs> and I took my first commercial airplane, airline flight all the way from Fresno to Burbank to visit my sister and her family who lived in Pasadena. And all of that happened, not just because I diligently uh, sought God, but because something was changed in me. And what was changed is the relationship between myself and my Lord. Yes, I believe that God did answer my prayer, but more importantly, I gained something of greater value. I begin to see God as a God of grace delights in its children coming to him. And I was changed. We pray. Not just to get something. Not just to make Lightshine a great success in the community. But we pray in order to know God. So what's the recipe? Secret? The formula for a successful startup? I don't know. And probably none of us in here knows. Because I don't think there is one. But I do know two qualities that are very important because they're important to that nascent startup church in the first century. We're to use our minds to think about the next step that God wants us to make so that light shine is viable for years to come. We're to use our minds to think and create ways of being the church that will minister to people, specifically people in this culture. And the second is to pray. Not to pray, but to make it a priority. A constant activity of the, of the activity of this church. Not to pray again for success. Rather that the kingdom of God will be furthered in this community because light shine exists. So my friends, what are you to do? Use your minds and think. And then pray.